Hi folks, thanks for joining us today for our Safety and Health Magazine webcast. We are gonna give our audience just a minute or two to get settled in and we'll begin the presentation shortly. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today, folks, for the Safety and Health Magazine webcast. We'll begin the program shortly. Thank you. Hello everyone, and welcome to today's Safety and Health Magazine webcast, High Reliability Safety Culture Development in 10 minutes a week per person, sponsored by Aveta. My name is Barry Botino, and I'm an Associate Editor at Safety and Health. I'll be moderating today's event. We'd like to thank you all for joining us. Before we get started, I have a few housekeeping items to share with you all. As a disclaimer, the views of today's speaker and organization are their own, and do not necessarily reflect those of the National Safety Council or Safety and Health Magazine. Any mention of a commercial enterprise, product, or publication does not mean the council or the magazine endorses those items. After today's presentation, we'll conduct a Q&A with our speaker. If you have a question, just click the Q&A button at the bottom of your screen, type in your question, and press the send button. You don't have to wait for the Q&A to begin to send us a question. We welcome your questions at any time at all during today's event. After this presentation, you'll be asked to complete a brief evaluation survey, but I'll tell you more about that a little bit later. This webcast will be archived, so you can access it after today's live event. To view this webcast and all of our past webcasts, please visit us online at safetyandhealthmagazine.com events, or you'll also receive a link in our post-event email. With that, let's introduce our presenter. With us today is Corey Worden, who serves as the safety advisor to the City of Houston Health Department. Corey is an experienced safety pro with more than 16 years under his belt, and he's the author of nine books about safety-related topics. Corey's work has been published by the American Society of Safety Professionals, the Association of Occupational Health Professionals in Healthcare, and the Institute for Safety and Health Management. In addition to receiving numerous medals and awards during his military career, Corey was honored as part of the 2015 Rising Stars of Safety by the National Safety Council, and he was the 2020 recipient of the Houston Health Department's Excellence in Community Service Award. Again, we thank you all for tuning into this presentation, and Corey, whenever you're ready, go ahead and take it away. Cool, thank you. Let me go ahead and turn the camera on. All right, so cool. Well, I appreciate the invitation to, to speak with everybody again today. It's always great to speak with like-minded people. So today we're gonna to be talking about high reliability and how we can make that happen. So one of the things that's always been interesting to me in the last 18 years is that high reliability is awfully, uh, awfully common as far as people saying that's what we want to get to as far as a goal but there's there's often a gap as far as how to get there you know it's one of those things that's kind of like a uh, utopian utopian goal but um, there's not necessarily a methodology that explains how to get there systematically and when it is it tends to be something that's looked at by people that work in kind of scholarly research and <clears throat> engineering and very high-level research-driven professions. So instead, what I thought was that we could break it down here by what high reliability means, and more specifically is how we can get there in a way that engages each team member and gives everybody something productive to do. So one of the conversations I always have is, you know, it's real easy to say that 
we need the whole organization, you know, from the top to the bottom and the bottom to the top, we need everybody to embrace the safety management system. But most of the time, if people don't know what the safety management system is, or they don't know the different parts of it, it's very difficult for people to do that. It just sounds like you're telling them to be careful. So today we're going to talk about high reliability and what that means. Then we'll talk about how we can develop that high reliability program. And more importantly, is we can talk about how we can develop employee activities to achieve it. So we're going to talk about pragmatics. Uh, I won't go too deep here, but you know, of course, if anybody like more information or if you'd like to talk offline, I'm always happy to. But this one explains what high reliability is kind of in a one pager. So as you see here, there's a couple of different components to it, a couple of different things that organizations look for. So more specifically, we want to definitely value safety, make sure we have good hazard controls that are integrated into the design and procedures that cover safe conditions as well as safe work practices, make sure we're doing everything in a way that's redundant so that if one thing doesn't work, then there's something to catch it. And of course, decentralization is key because there's not always going to be a supervisor or somebody around, just more specifically, not going to be a safety officer around that's able to constantly oversee these things. So we want people to be able to make the safest decisions, even if it's two o'clock in the morning on a Tuesday night, you know, when there's nobody else around. So that's kind of the big picture. And then one of the things to remember about high reliability is that it was created as a counterpoint to normal accident theory. So what happened in the aftermath of the Three Mile Island nuclear disaster was that you had these two schools of thoughts. And one of them was normal accident theory, where what they said was you have these systems such as nuclear power generation or, or uh, naval aviation, you know, landing on aircraft carriers or NASA launching rockets to the moon. You know, you have these very complex, very highly, um, highly sophisticated, the way they call it, tightly coupled, which means a lot of moving parts, a lot of people involved systems. And with that, when you add in people, this, the propensity for human error, you're going to have a potentially catastrophic accident. And so normal accident theory was basically deciding that that's going to happen. Now, the flip side of that is high reliability, where what they're saying is that if we're able to constantly identify potential failures, constantly work on the most effective controls, and constantly integrate those into the system, and then constantly learn from any potential failures that we can catch through leading indicators, then we can prevent catastrophic failure. And so there was a lot of research that went into this over the years. Um, you may have seen a lot of it with things like the NASA and um, incident analysis from the Columbia and the Challenger disasters. There's been a lot of work around Fremont Island, a lot of work around Chernobyl, and a lot of things with, again, naval aviation, space flight, um, healthcare, complex surgery, all different kinds of things. And so high reliability has been highly researched as that means to prevent catastrophic failure, even when there's a lot of moving parts, things are moving very quickly, and there's a lot of people involved. So what that breaks down to is something that needs to happen, but ultimately, as you see here, it, it can't be something that's contingent on the implementation by geniuses, because it's one of those things that if you have somebody that's incredibly, you know, high level smart, and they create this thing, but then as soon as they leave the room, everybody else doesn't really know what to do with it, it doesn't help. And that's something that they've talked about a lot also with military operations is, you know, it's one thing for somebody that's a consultant or an advisor at the Pentagon to create this operations plan. But if it can't be executed by, you know, the, the company or the platoon or the squadron level organization, then it's not, it's not going to work, you know. So we want to make sure it's pragmatic and it's feasible. And that comes down to the principles. So what you see here is high reliability has these principles, five of them. And what you see here is preoccupation with failure, which is arguably the most important because we want to be constantly looking for anything that may cause a failure so that we can control it. And then we control it to the most reasonable means. And that comes up to we want to make sure that we defer to experts so that we can get the right subject matter expertise. And that's important because the expert may not be the highest ranking person there. You know, so we don't want to say we're going to just talk to the people up on the executive team because the executive team may not be the subject matter expert for when you're talking about something that happens in the field. You may be talking to someone that's way further down on the on the chain of command, but we want to make sure we get the right information. 
And then of course, we wanna be reluctant to simplify. So we wanna make sure that we're getting everything to where it works properly, even if it requires a little more time and effort. You know, so there's always gonna be a push for efficiency, but we wanna make sure that we get effectiveness as well. And then from there, we wanna make sure it's sensitive to operations. Because it's one of those things that if, if we make things as safe as possible, you know, if we're going for eliminating the risk, then it may be the thing where the operation doesn't happen anymore because we've made it so safe that we can't work. You know, so we want to make sure that we're doing these things in a manner where the operation can still happen with the risk as low as reasonable and as low as feasible. And we want to make sure that when we're doing the safety management program or the safety management system, I should say, that this works in a way to where it doesn't inhibit the operation. So for example, if we're going to do observations and inspections for leading indicators, we want to be able to do that in a way where it's happening in real time, as opposed to we're going to stop all the operations, we're going to make sure it's safe, and then we're going to let it start again, because eventually that's not going to be reasonable. And then, of course, we want to be committed to resilience. So we want to learn from any anything that goes wrong, whether it's a near miss, whether it's a, an observation, an inspection, or definitely if it's an incident analysis, we want to be able to apply preventative measures and get better. So that's the whole key of being a learning organization. So with that being said, now we get into what we're going to do with that information. So now we know that we got to get from where we're at to this high reliability culture where these things can be reliable and valid and consistent, and they can be done on a day-to-day -day basis by everybody involved. Okay, so how do we do that? So as we all know, you know, we have to first look at the risks, you know, some of these risks are things that are right in front of us, whether it's the risk of not having enough employees. Right now with COVID-19 and the, the current situation, that's a very real risk, you know? Do we have too many people that are out sick? If that's the case, then we can't operate. Then of course, that also plays into strategic risk. You know, are we gonna be able to operate over a long period of time? Whether it be a matter of sustaining operations, whether it be competition, whether it be, um, you know, solvency in the marketplace, and then we want to look at also how external risks apply. And that's going to be your natural disasters. And of course, this pandemic we're dealing with, as well as other potential threats. But then we have our hazard risk. And that's the stuff that's right here in front of us that's part of our operations. And so that's where we have to make those decisions of which of those risks are we going to deal with? Which of the risks are we going to eliminate? And which of them are we just going to accept at face value? And that's the first key to risk management is what the heck to do about it. So like we said there, we can control some of them. Some of them we can transfer to other people, which would be things like contracts, um, insurance, all different kinds of risk transfers. And then we have, of course, the things that we're gonna completely avoid with the downside being that operation won't happen, or we have the things we're gonna accept, the downside being that there's a chance there'll be something bad happening. So we wanna look at the control as much as we can. And that's gonna be typically applied to those hazard risks that we have as well as, um, you know, we can do things about the external risks. Um, and then of course, with the operational and strategic risks, those have a lot to do with business decisions as well. So those are things that definitely require um, a lot of collaboration. So when we start getting into this, then we wanna break it down a notch further. So now we know that we have those risks that are hazards. And among the hazards, we have some of them that we consider to be stagnant. So for example, if you have a piece of equipment, like, a, um, like in a factory, you have a blow mold, you have a um, uh, blow mold, you have a filler, you have a labeler, you have a packer and a palletizer. You know, that's your, your system for making uh, bottled water or bottled drinks. And so within that, you know, we're gonna do the hazard analysis and the job safety analysis for each of those pieces of equipment. We're gonna write the procedures, write the lockout procedures. We're gonna get the PPE and we're gonna set it up. And so if that equipment doesn't change, you know, it's gonna stay pretty stagnant. We're gonna to continue to follow those procedures. We're gonna operate, we're gonna monitor, we're gonna use leading indicators and we're gonna to check to make sure it works. If something goes wrong or if there's some reason to believe that something's not effective, then we're gonna change it. But ultimately that equipment's gonna stay the same. The difference would be a dynamic hazard is where you're talking about something that changes consistently. So for example, if you're in a healthcare environment, your stagnant hazard is gonna be, okay, do I know how to operate this needle? 
you know, do I know how to give a shot or an injection or a, run an IV? Okay, yes, I do. Okay, good. That's not going to change unless you change the device. But the dynamic part of it is that every patient's different. Some of them are going to be scared of needles. Some of them are going to be combative. Some may be um, intoxicated. You know, some may have visitors that are, you know, having having a lot of emotional crises. So there's a lot of dynamics involved there. So it's one thing to be able to give an injection, but it's another thing to be able to give an injection where somebody is is trying to slap you or somebody's yelling at you or whatnot. So we want to be able to look for both those types of hazards, and then we're going to work to control that. So we got to look for how to do the task, how to run the equipment, but also how to do that within the different variables that apply. And that may be, again, that may be something like workplace violence. It may be something like weather conditions if we're outside, you know, all different kinds of things. So now that we're looking at that, of course, we can look at the different hazards. You know, you've got your your working conditions, which is going to be things like the physical environment, whether it's a facility or whether it's an outdoor operation with the weather. And then you've also got your equipment that you're working with. Then you've also got the work practices. So we made sure that the place is safe. We made sure the equipment's safe. Now we got to make sure we know what we're doing. So do we know how to do the task? Do we have the JSA? Do we know what PPE to wear? And now we got to also contend with any third party dynamics, whether it's in healthcare, we have patients, we have visitors. Um, in the last decade, you know, there's been a lot of unfortunate, tragic situations with workplace violence, where people are working, they got the safe equipment, they got the safe workplace, they got the procedures, they're doing their job, but then somebody, somebody commits an atrocity of workplace violence. So we want to be able to look for all these different variables, and that way nothing gets missed. And that's, of course, the first step of high reliability is preoccupation with failure. So the reason this is important, if we look at Heinrich, you know, back in way back in the day, Heinrich says that you have your three different causal factors. So you've got about 2% that are going to be your acts of God, which is going to be like your natural disasters and whatnot. It's interesting because the current COVID-19 pandemic could fall under act of God. It could also fall under unsafe condition could also follow under safe behavior. It's, it's interesting, but we won't go off on that tangent right now. So here, if we look at those three different things, unsafe acts, unsafe conditions, acts of God, as defined by Heinrich, then this tells us for high reliability, acts of God, we can't do anything about the causal factor. Like we can't stop a hurricane, you know, unless we're storm from the X-Men, if, if you're into comic books. But what we can do is board up the windows, we can put sandbags on the doors, we can we can mitigate the risk. So that's a scientific means. And now unsafe conditions. So for example, if we got a wet floor, if we got a tripping hazard, we can dry the floor, we can remove the tripping hazard or secure it. You know, those are all scientific means. They're, they're passive controls. They don't require the individual employee to do a lot of critical thinking. So we're gonna render it safe and then we're gonna go about our business. But the big difference is unsafe behaviors that requires a lot of leadership and it requires training and it requires oversight and it requires a lot of adaptation and a lot of innovation and we got to make sure that everybody understands what to do when to do it and how to do it and so that's an art form and art is you know leadership is the most difficult art there is because it's not it's not a science it's not something that we can develop a methodology for and then just do that you know, we have to be able to learn from things. We have to be able to continue to evolve. That's why the military, of course, spends crazy high amounts of time teaching leadership because it's, it's the most difficult art form. So if we're looking at high reliability, that means that we have to interject both science and art. We have to be able to put the most effective controls in place, but then make sure those controls are integrated into the organization and they're executed in real time by everybody. So that's what kind of gets us into being able to make this happen is that we want to think of a methodology where it does both those things. So if we look at it in terms of risk, you know, we cover the legal compliance, that's going to knock out a bunch of the risk just because it's putting in those minimum standards based on the Code of Federal Regulations and National Consistent Standards. Then we go down to hazard control expectations, which is going to be like a hierarchy of controls. So for anything that's not covered by the CFR, then we're going to go down to the hierarchy of controls and we're going to put in those uh, eliminations, substitutions, engineering, 
um, P, uh, engineering administration, PPE, and then of course training for all of that. Then the last step there is we've got to now make sure that everybody knows what to do, when to do, and how to do it in real time. So we got to look for the dynamic variables and be able to use those hazard controls when the time comes. So that kind of gets us here where, as you see, the, the baseline of this whole thing is that, you know, we've got to cover the regulations mostly because it's the law and because they're minimum standards. And then from there, we got to put those controls in place so that we're covering anything that's not covered by a regulation. But then we want to get to the point where each employee is involved and engaged. And that's where the high reliability really comes into it. Because again, if it's two o'clock in the morning on a Tuesday, there's nobody else around. The regulations only go so far. And then you've got your other controls you put in place. But if people don't know how to use those or they don't know when to use them or they choose not to use them, then it's not going to work. So we want to be able to build it to that high level. And that's that high reliability. And it's also important because as far as culture change, this is a very basic culture change model. And so if we look at this, we're breaking it down. If we have a group of people, they, they're typically split three ways. So you've got 25% of your population is going to be what we consider to be defiantly unsafe. So those are the people that they're always going to be concerned with working faster, even if it means violating safety protocols, even if it means uh, cutting corners, not using PPE, whatever it may be. So we have to acknowledge that there's that's always going to be a presence. Then we have 25% that are what we call diligently safe. These are going to be the people that are your safety committee, your safety champions. They always follow the procedures. They always help other people. They help with training. They help with recommendations. They're always on the, they're always on the up and up. So now we know if you had your workforce, you got a bunch of people that are over here, they're diligently safe. You got a couple people over here that are defiantly unsafe. So in the middle, you got your biggest group. And those are the ones that are subject to the local culture. So if the organization, if, if somebody comes into the organization and they start working and the first thing they hear about is, oh, forget the safety protocols, get it done, work faster, forget the PPE, you'll be fine. And that's all they hear about. That's probably what they're going to do because they want to fit in. They want to be part of the culture. They don't want to rock the boat. But on the contrary, if that person comes into work the first day and all they hear about is, you know, here are the safety protocols. Make sure you follow the safety protocols. If you have any concerns, make sure you ask us. Talk to your supervisor if you have any concerns. You know, do you want to join the safety committee? If they're hearing about safety and that's part of their culture, then they're not, again, they're not going to want to rock the boat. So they're going to follow the safety protocols. They're going to get involved. They don't want to be the one that gets caught without the PPE. They don't want to be the one not following the procedure. So 50% of the people are subject to the culture. What that tells us is that we want to make sure that those 50% are exposed to the people that are diligently safe. And ultimately, that means that the number who's defiantly unsafe is going to go down. So if we continue to, we'll say, convert the people that are subject to the local culture to be diligently safe, then the number that's defiantly safe is going to suddenly start feeling a little uncomfortable and they'll suddenly go, well, I should probably just follow the safety procedure. So that's really the trick there is being able to make sure we're always doing the right things there so we can continue to evolve to where more and more people go toward the diligently safe route. And again, that's another way that we're going to get to that high reliability is through culture change. So to break that down, the first thing we'll talk about there as far as the methodology is we have to know the hazards. So again, we want to know about the environment, the facility, the equipment, the procedures, any other variables that may affect us, whether it's potential natural disaster, potential workplace violence, potential disease exposure. Then we want to know what we're going to do about it. So we got the controls. We want to make sure everybody has access to the controls. So if we tell people to use PPE, we need to be able to provide the PPE and make sure it fits and they can get to it. Then we want to teach people how to maintain situational awareness so they know how to identify those hazards. So whether it's, I'm going to work on this equipment, so I need to follow this procedure with this logout procedure and use this PPE, or whether it's, I'm doing this task and I need to watch out so that if a patient tries to punch me, then I can respond to that. And then from there, we're going to work on continuing to promote this 
So we get to the point where everybody chooses to follow those safety protocols and everybody chooses to engage in improvements, meaning that they're going to they're going to say when they have a concern, they're going to say when they have a recommendation, they're going to share their stories, they're going to certainly share near miss reports. So if we're able to get all these things happening, then we can continue to improve. And that gets us closer to that high reliability goal, which is one of those things that, you know, it's not about the goal, it's about, it's about the journey there and continuing to improve. So to get there, we've got our operationalization and that's going to be our safety management system. So of course we got to have our infrastructure, which is like our safety committee and our our subject matter experts. Maybe your incident command system, NIMS. Uh, then we're going to have our hazard analysis, so we know what hazards exist. Then we're going to have the risk assessment, so we know who's affected and what severity and everything. Then we know the controls we're going to implement. Then we're going to communicate those expectations. Then we're going to validate them through observations and inspections and near miss reports and leading indicators. Then we're going to monitor for any kind of negative fallout, such as incidents or claims. And then we're going to analyze those incidents to figure out what we can do to improve. So again, there's our safety management system. And then from there, now we can correlate that. So now we know that the safety management system you see on the bottom there is correlated directly with the high reliability principles. Because if we are looking for hazards, then we're preoccupied with failure. If we're putting up controls, we're gonna to talk to the subject matter experts to make sure we got the most effective controls. So we're deferring to experts. We're gonna do all this in a way that's effective. So we're not gonna rely on just one control when we need another one. You know, we're gonna make sure that we have the most effective. So for example, if we if we need an engineering control, we're not gonna settle for, you know, an administrative control or we're gonna make sure we have an actual control instead of just telling people to be careful. So we're gonna be reluctant to simplify. Then we're gonna do all this in a way that allows the operations to continue. So we're gonna be sensitive to operations. Then from there, we're gonna learn from anything that goes wrong. So we're gonna be committed to resilience. So now we have these high reliability principles. We have our safety management system that covers them. And so now of course, how do we get there? So we're gonna develop the program. So first thing there is we wanna have our infrastructure. So again, with our safety committee, you know, we wanna make sure that we're gonna have our chain of command, which is our employees, their supervisors, and then of course the leadership. But the safety committee, of course, is gonna be lateral to that. So we wanna make sure that the safety committee is able to get information from the, from the field and then analyze it, develop recommendations, and then give those recommendations up to the senior leadership. So once we have that, then we need to identify those hazards. And this is arguably one of the most important things because this is how we're gonna figure out what we need to do and what the potential failure is. And so this is something we can talk to employees about. So we wanna make sure that we're getting feedback. So can employees tell us their concerns? Do they have a means to do that? Do they know who to talk to? And that's gonna be not only the workplace conditions, but also work practices, any challenges they have, such as being able to find PPE, being able to use PPE, um, having a procedure that works, that's not, you know, it's not um, uh, something that they're, they're not trained to do or they don't know how to do. And then any transitions there, you know, that's one of the things we always talk about with needle stick prevention is it's one thing to be able to give an injection but you have to be able to go get the device, get the medication, get that together, walk from there to the patient room, make sure there's no slip trips or falls on the way, talk to the patient, make sure that they know what's going on, communicate, then do the actual task. And then now you have a contaminated needle, get that into a neutral zone so we don't pass it to somebody and accidentally stick them. And then take that, then walk to the disposal box, make sure the disposal box is in a way that's convenient and accessible and then dispose of the contaminated sharp. So all those things have to happen to make sure there's no needle stick. And so again, those transitions are very important. And of course, we also have our individual assessments. The most common example of that I always say is, you know, we don't wanna have somebody that has a broken ankle try to climb a ladder, you know, and then of course, management change. So for example, if we're at a PPE, then who do we talk to to order more? If we need something, fixed? Who do we talk to for equipment maintenance? You know, all these different things we need to know about. 
And these are things that employees can tell us that they have a concern. So that's the first question we have here is, does the organization have a process or a method for requesting those hazard identifications? So if an employee has a concern or a question, do they know who to bring it to? And do they know how to get an answer? So I'm always curious there if, if the teams have that going on. So we'll give it just a few seconds for everybody to respond. There's been a, a lot of things I've done over the years that have been a work in progress where it's always been making sure that everybody knows just who the point of contact is, you know, who to call if they have a safety concern. Because as new people come on board, you know, as change happens, it's common that people just won't know and they'll just hold on to their safety concern. So we'll get back to that one, but that's the first thing that we want to look at is, are we identifying hazards and do people know how to do that? Okay. So now at this point, now we got to control those hazards. So again, art and science. So we got our science, which is going to be, can we eliminate it? Can we substitute it? Can we engineer it out? And if we can't do that, then we got to create a procedure or a process change, or we got to use PPE, and then we got to make sure we're training people accordingly. And those are art forms. So we have to follow up on that and make sure that everybody knows what to do and how to do it. And then, of course, we also want to train about situational awareness. So, for example, you know, right now with the pandemic, for example, if people are working, do they know how to identify a potential exposure? You know, is, is, is they identify when somebody's symptomatic? So somebody's coughing and sneezing and they're feverish, or is it when somebody has been exposed? You know, um, if we're able to identify the potential exposure, then we're able to mitigate it. So for example, with our testing teams, you know, if they're out there doing COVID-19 testing, we have the area set up where the people come in to do the test. So they know if they're in that hot zone, they're within six feet of people being tested as a potential exposure there. So that's the first step is to observe, to make sure you know where we're at and what we're doing. And then we're gonna orient. Okay, so we identify a hazard. So do we know what we're, what are we trained to do about it? What are the norms? What are the expectations? Do we know the process to follow? Do we know the PPE to use? You know, so if we know these things, then we're able to orient and go, okay, I see this hazard. I know what to do about it. So now I'm gonna be able to decide, make the decision on what to do, and I'm gonna be able to do it before I have a negative outcome. So we have the hazard control. So for example, with the disease exposures, hazard control would be, okay, we know we're gonna be working with people who are potentially infectious. So we're going to have a respiratory protection program. We're gonna have PPE. We're gonna have contamination control. We're gonna have bio-waste disposal, among other things. And so then I'm gonna train and we're gonna coach so that people know how to identify a potential exposure. They know what to do about it and then they can do it in real time. A couple things to think about with that is, you know, there's a lot of times when engineering controls and administrative controls coexist. For example, in healthcare, if you're um, if you're doing patient movement, you know, you go get a piece of equipment, you use the piece of equipment to move the patient. So it's kind of like a dolly where it takes the weight of the patient off the employee and it prevents the fall. But for that to work, the employee has to go get the equipment and go put the equipment into use. So it's an administrative control being that to follow the procedure. And then once they get it, it's an engineering control that it mitigates the weight of the patient. Um, and then of course, we wanna make sure that the engineering controls, you know, they don't remove the personal accountability. So for example, if you're in a factory and you have an interlock on a piece of equipment that shuts it down, if you break the interlock, then we wanna make sure that that doesn't encourage anybody to not follow the lockout tagout procedure you know, because the interlock may not be entirely effective. So the lockout tagout procedure there is for redundancy to make sure that it's still safe. And then of course, we wanna make sure that training and education are actually training so that people know how to use the control and not just telling people to be careful. You know, it's one of those things in the past, I've seen people do training on diseases and they'll talk about, here's the disease, here's how you get the disease and here's why the disease is dangerous, but they don't talk about how to prevent the exposure to it. 
you know, so we want to make sure that we're talking about it in terms of here's the disease, here's why it's dangerous, and to prevent the exposure, we want to look for an exposure such as symptomology or being in a hot zone or whatnot, and then use respiratory protection, use PPE, use contamination control, use bio-waste disposal, and that way we can prevent the exposure. Um, then, of course, we want to make sure we include situational awareness so we know when the hazard's going to pop up and how to catch it. And then, of course, we want to look for cost-first benefit because sometimes those controls are costly. You know, sometimes they require strategic planning as far as capital and capital investments and whatnot. And then other things with the training. So we want to make sure we have the control. So if we train somebody to use PPE, but the PPE is not available, it defeats the purpose. And then we want to make sure we set the expectation. So we say, if you're going to do this task, you have to use this PPE, or you have to follow this procedure, or you have to use this control, whatever it is. Uh, then we want to make sure that the training means that the control is a part of the training and the expectation is clear. And then we can use the inspections later that we'll talk about in a moment, the leading indicators. The inspections can check that the control is there. So for example, inspection can tell us, do we have the PPE? Do we have all the different sizes? You know, are the respirators NOSH approved? And then the observations can check that people are following the expectation. So for example, the inspection tells us the PPE is there. The observation tells us that people are getting the PPE and they're using the PPE in real time. And then of course, we also wanna remember that operations and safety are not separate. So if we have people that are running an operation, it's also their responsibility to make sure the safety protocols are being followed because it's one of those things that if it's just left on the safety officer to go and make sure that the safety protocols are being followed and they never hear about it from the operations manager, it's not gonna, it's not gonna be considered something that has to happen. It's not gonna be a value. So that's something that, you know, at the strategic level between the management and the safety, we want to make sure that everybody's integrated so that the management knows to do this task, we have to use these safety protocols. So the safety officer is going to be just validating that's happening, but they shouldn't be responsible for enforcing it. And then, of course, like we said, with the hazard controls, due diligence means that we want to make sure that everybody knows what to do. They're trained to do it. What they need is available and accessible. And then we're checking to make sure it's happening. And then both the employee and the leadership is duly accountable for making sure that happens. So the employee is responsible for doing it, but to do it, the leadership is responsible for training them and providing the equipment and making sure it's happening. So each person has a part to play. It's not just a matter of pointing fingers. Okay, so here's the next question. So we talked about, do we have a way to identify hazards and get recommendations and feedback? So here, do we have a process for team members to provide hazard control feedback, recommendations, and questions. So for example, if I'm an employee and I think, you know, I'm pretty concerned about that, my job doing COVID-19 testing, I really need a NIOSH approved respirator. Do I have a way to make that recommendation? Do I have a way to provide feedback? So if I say, hey, I've got these nitrile gloves, but they don't fit, you know, or, hey, I noticed that we have this really awesome equipment, you know, for, um, let's say, um, chemical handling, you know, for chemical uh, containment, but I don't know how to use it, you know, or, I, hey, I, I noticed we have this chemical in this 55-gallon drum. We really need containment that contains 110% of that drum, you know, so do we have a way that people can do that, and does that feedback get up to the executive team? So again, we'll get back to that, but that's the next step there. Identify the hazards, then make sure the controls are in place, make sure people have a way to engage. And so from that point, now we're going to communicate the expectations. So one of the things about communication is that, you know, subject matter experts in HR and training, they'll tell you that the information needs to be presented 100 different ways, whereas educators will tell you that it needs to be done seven ways, seven times each. But either way, as you see, the idea is that they're hearing about it on a frequent, recurring, consistent basis. And so they hear that enough, it becomes part of the culture. But communication itself is not enough. 
you know, it's not just a matter of talking about it. The idea of communication is that we're reinforcing the expectation to use the hazard control. So we identify the hazard, we put the control in place, we taught everybody how to use it, and now we're going to make sure that we continually reinforce that expectation. So that can be done a number of ways, you know, bulletin boards, um, safety huddles, safety moments, emails, newsletters, safety meetings, team meetings. So that's the next question there. Does the team have a process for sharing those safety communications and for team members to also share their safety stories and whatnot? Because that communication is what reinforces the expectation. Okay, so now at this point, we know that each employee can provide hazard control recommendation, or excuse me, they can provide hazard identifications and concerns. Each employee can provide uh, hazard control recommendations. And each employee can also participate in safety communications. So even if they don't directly engage, they can still, they know what the hazard is, they know what to do about it, and they hear about it on a consistent recurring basis. So now each person's getting that as part of their culture. So the next step here is to validate it. So we're gonna check for to make sure it's being done. So for example, we know the hazard is, uh, let's say, um, slip trip falls. Okay, so we know the hazard is um, a tripping hazard on the floor. So the control is that we're going to secure the tripping hazard and make sure it doesn't trip anybody. So we're gonna put that in place. We're going to, if anybody has any recommendations on how to do that, we're going to listen. Then we're going to make sure we communicate the expectation is if there's a cord across the floor, it's got to be secured or it's got to be moved off the floor. And so then we're going to go validate that's being done. So we're going to go do our inspection and we're going to check to make sure that the cord is secure or the cord is removed. And we're going to do an observation to see if as people are walking down the hall, if they see a loose cord, do they stop and secure it? or do they stop and move it, or do they at least report it? And so now we're checking for it. So if these things aren't being done, then it's not gonna matter. You know, Another example would be with um, PPE. So I know the hazard is that I can cut my hands. So we're gonna implement hand protection. We're gonna make sure we have gloves that are available, accessible, they fit properly. And then we're gonna communicate that expectation. If you're doing this task, you've gotta wear the gloves. And then we're going to check on it. So the inspection is, do the gloves exist? Do people have gloves that fit? The observation is, are people putting on the gloves when they're doing that task in real time? And so now we're going to check on it. So we can see here from this example that, you know, this guy here, he's, this incident is going down the hill and all he's doing is chasing it because all he's looking at is incident reports and workers' comp claims. So he's losing money. He doesn't know what's going on. But this guy down here, He's got his inspections, his observations. So he knows if there's no PPE. He knows if people aren't wearing the PPE. He knows if there was a potential incident because somebody wasn't wearing PPE. So he can stop this incident before it rolls over him. And that's what leading indicators are all about, is prevention. So we can check for participation and engagement. So for example, do we do the inspections? Do we do the observations? Do we have near-miss reports? And then we can check performance. So we look at the inspections. Okay, do we have safe conditions? We look at the observations. Do we have safe work practices? Then we look at the near-miss reports. You know, are we working on improvements to prevent future near-miss reporting, or um, excuse me, to prevent future near-misses like that? So leading indicators, we can check for that. And we wanna make sure it's a just culture. So we don't wanna write people up. You know, we don't wanna threaten to fire people because it defeats the purpose. We wanna make sure that we're encouraging people to help with the inspections and the observations and the air reports. And then we get that information and we use that information to better control the hazard, but not to go out and write people up and fire them because ultimately it's still accountability. So if somebody reports an inspection, there's no PPE, that gives the leadership a cue they need to go get the PPE. Or if they report that the PPE is not being used, then that's a question, okay, well, do we not train them? Do we not have it available, accessible, convenient, or did it not fit? So it's all things we can check on and we can improve from. So that's the next question. Okay, does the team have a process for team members to get involved? So are team members able to engage in inspections, 
check for safe conditions? Can team members engage in observations to check for safe work practices? Do team members engage in near miss reporting? And does that, are those things done with a just culture so that people don't fear their, you know, fear getting fired if they, if they help with safety? So that's something else we can think about. So now at this point, we know the hazard, we know the control, we've been reminded and reinforced of the expectation to use the control. And now we've validated that we have the control and we validated that it's being used. So we have our hazard identification, we have our hazard control, we have our communication, we have our leading indicators. And then of course, the last part of this is the lagging indicators, which is the bad stuff that happens. So we wanna make sure that we're preventing these things because if they don't get prevented, it just gets worse. As you see here, the first thing of course, is it has an immediate effect on the employee's health, whether it's an injury or an illness. And then from there, it's gonna be a report. It may go on the OSHA log. It may become a claim. That claim may become days away restrictions or transitional duty. It may have incurred costs or direct costs or both. And it may ultimately end up affecting productivity because you have fewer people to do more work. And that's what's happening a lot right now with the pandemic is that there's a lot of people that are um, affected by COVID-19 and so there's fewer people that are able to work and that's creating more strain on those people, which creates more potential for exposure or injury. And that creates cultural challenges, which creates the potential for unsafe conditions or unsafe practices. So it's kind of devolving, unfortunately. So we wanna make sure that we're able to prevent those things. And that creates reliability and validity. So like we said there, if each person is engaged and involved, so each individual employee spends 10 minutes a week, they identify a hazard or they raise a concern, they provide a recommendation for a control or they help you know, teach their partner or their peer how to do it. Um, they do communication so they hear a safety moment or a safety huddle or a tailgate and they help they share a story, they help with an inspection, they help with an observation or they provide a near miss report so 10 minutes a week, each person involved with hazard ID, hazard control, communication, and leading indicators, all those things is what serves to prevent these things from continuing to happen. So the big picture, of course, is here. If we catch these things at the lowest level, so you see down here on the bottom right corner, we have high frequency. These are the things that happen all the time. But when I say low severity, we don't mean low severity to the employee because that person's getting injured or that person's getting sick. So that's high severity to the individual, but it's low severity to the organization, meaning it's not gonna shut down the organization, okay? But if we don't handle that, then it creates a campus or a, or a, a facility issue. So now it affects visitors or the public, and now it's higher severity because now it might get sued. There might be regulatory issues, okay? If it still doesn't get handled, then it if you have an, if you have a, a, a disease or a germ, now we have infection control issues. So if it's not handled at the lowest level, then it affects the public, and then it gets outside the facility, then it affects the community, it becomes an outbreak. And that's the first thing that happened with COVID-19, of course, is it got into the communities. And then if it still doesn't get resolved, then it goes out to the highest level, which is the lowest frequency, but the highest severity. And then it becomes emergency management, and that affects the whole organization where it'll literally shut down the organization. And in the case of COVID-19, it'll shut down the whole economy, the whole world. So it's one of those things that we wanna look at it at the lowest level. So we wanna look for the hazard, implement the control, communicate the expectation, then validate the expectations being done and check for all those different nuances. The hazard itself, are we checking for safe conditions, safe work practices, situational awareness, the hazard controls, do we have the control? Is it available and accessible? Do people know how to use it? Do people know when to use it? The communication, are we communicating it in a variety of ways? Are people involved and engaged? The leading indicators, are we checking? Are we doing them? Inspections, observations, near misses. When we do them, are we checking for safe conditions? Are we checking for safe work practices? And do we take that information and relay it so we can continue to improve? So if we do all those things, we can catch these things at the lowest level.
And this, of course, is just a uh, kind of a summary of how this has rolled out at a hospital in the past, you know, is they had an incredibly high rate. But then we got the committee together, we got the subject matter experts, defer to experts. We started looking at hazards, got involvement, got participation, got engagement, put the controls in place, whether it's equipment, procedures, PPE, made sure everybody's trained. And then we started validating those things are being done and started communicating, started making sure everybody's reminded and reinforced. And then it just brings down the rate systematically. So it's one of those things, it's, it's an art form, but it's also a science. And then it becomes that cycle. So it's continual improvement. You know, we have our safety committee, our subject matter experts. We're constantly looking for hazards. We're constantly hearing feedback. We're constantly adjusting controls, making sure they're effective. Then we're communicating. You see this guy in the middle here, he's communicating on a consistent recurring basis reminding people of the of the uh, expectations and then we're checking on it to make sure it's being done if it's something's not right we can fix it on the way and then we check for any incidents or any lagging indicators and then we're able to resolve those then we take that information go back to the safety committee and then do the whole thing again so if each person participates for about 10 minutes a week then as you see here each person's involved each person is engaged And it breaks down to that high reliability concept. And it's those five things, 10 minutes a week. So if I'm an individual employee, then I'm gonna get engaged. So I'm gonna bring, I'm gonna raise my concerns. I'm gonna make my recommendations for hazard controls. I'm gonna work on communication, whether it's just hearing a hearing a safety huddle or whether it's actually sharing a story. I'm gonna validate by helping with inspections and observations and near-miss reports. And then I'm gonna help with investigations if we need it. So if there's a situation, then I can help with recommendations, I can help with participation. So if each person gets involved in these things, each person has buy-in, each person has a part to play. And then ultimately for the safety professionals, then that gets us that much more information because now we're hearing from everybody what their concerns are. We're hearing their recommendations. We're hearing that consistent communication. We're hearing what's working and what's not working. We're hearing about near misses. And then all that information goes back to the safety committee. We can take that, make recommendations, and then get it up to the leadership who has the ability to, to pay for it. Honestly, they have the capital funds, they have the budget. And then we're able to reset the expectations and keep improving. So it works out pretty well. But uh, the important part is that each person's involvement is really critical there. So if we look at those polls we did earlier, um, if we can pull those up. So that's great. So what we see here, if we're talking about, um, do we have a way to engage employees so they can bring us concerns? Looks like, and then do we have um, a way that employees can make recommendations and they can get involved in the hazard control process? And then do we have uh, communication? Do we have leading indicators? Can employees get involved in leading indicators? So look at the 90% had a way for employees to get involved with the hazard, um, voicing hazards and concerns. It was like 84% have a way for employees to get involved with the hazard control process so they can have a voice in whether or not controls are effective and whether they need it. Then communication, 90%, have a way for employees to get involved with safety moments and safety huddles and reminding and reinforcing about the controls. Then the last one is uh, with, can employees get involved with observations and inspections and near miss reports, uh, 89%. So that's really good. That shows that uh, of the audience, you know, it, um, 84% or higher, you know, have those, those different mechanisms and as we saw, those mechanisms are what creates the communication. It creates the engagement. It creates the effective controls and the continual improvement and validates that they're effective. And that's what stops those hazards from causing injuries and illnesses at the low level, which prevents it from becoming a facility issue or a public issue. And that prevents it from getting into the community and that prevents it from becoming an emergency, which creates high reliability. So if each person spends 10 minutes a week, it, really creates a lot.
So again, that's me. Uh, if there's any, any questions, any concerns, or if you'd like the slides or anything, or any of the articles or books or whatever, it's all, I'll send it to you for free. You know, feel free to send me an email and I'm, I'm happy to talk offline. But again, I, uh, I appreciate the opportunity to talk with everybody today. And uh, if there's any questions I can help with now, I'm happy to. Great. Well, thank you, Corey. Appreciate you sharing your insights with us on this topic. Uh, before we start the q and I want to let everyone know about the evaluation survey that we're asking you to complete. Uh, the survey will open in a different screen after our webinar today. Um, your input is really important to us because it does help to improve our future webcasts. So let's get to a couple questions, Corey. Our first question from the audience is, uh, how do you get employees to use the feedback methods that are provided? Uh, and our questioner says, we have systems in place, but generally they aren't used. Yeah, great question. You know, we've had that situation as well, where it's one thing for me to put out the message that, you know, we, we really want your feedback, I promise. You know, even when the, the director or the senior management, you know, if they say, no, seriously, we want you to tell us what's up. A lot of times, unless they've heard that, unless they've had that culture, there's, there's some concern there. People are afraid of reprisal or they're afraid of negative connotations or being labeled a complainer. So one of the things I've done is that um, I will, um, you know, if, for example, if somebody has feedback for me, then I'll ask them if they're okay with me sharing that. And then we'll do during like a, a team meeting or whatnot, or a town hall meeting, then I'll actually say, you know, that we'd like to give this certificate of appreciation to this person for bringing us this concern because this concern helped us to identify a hazard. And then we were able to put this control in place and that helped us to prevent these incidents. And so that way people see that person being positively recognized and that kind of brings down some of those barriers and some of those concerns about saying anything. Um, so sometimes things like that with you know, positive reinforcement and just just slowly building that trust to where people don't fear that they're going to get in trouble. Um, sometimes that helps a lot, but also just the consistency of it is just, you know, the, the more things are talked about and they don't see people getting in trouble, then slowly people will start saying things. I, I've been here for over a little over two years now, uh, two years and six months. And for the first year or so, it was, it was pretty quiet. You know, there weren't a lot of feedback, but it, now we, we, we get a lot of feedback and a lot of it's just completely public. You know, it's not even anonymous because uh, people are become comfortable to voice it, which, you know, makes me really happy. Great. Thank you for that, Corey. Appreciate it. Mm -hmm. It looks like we've got time, Corey, for one more question before we reach the top of the hour here. Mm -hmm. And our questioner says, I've always thought that the KISS method, keep it simple, stupid, was a great approach. Uh, can you elaborate, Corey, a little bit more on the reluctant, reluctance to simplify and what that is about? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, with reluctance to simplify, it, it's it's actually separate from the, from the KISS approach. Uh, so I totally understand that. Um, when we talk about that, what we mean is we want to make sure that we're using the most effective controls, even if it's not, you know, the, the easiest. So a good example would be, for example, with, um, if we have a, um, let's say we have a, um, I'll use the training example. You know, it's one thing if we, we say that we need to train people on how to, prevent um, an injury. And so it's one thing if we do the training and we say, okay, here's the hazard. If you do this, you're going to get hurt. So be careful. You know, that'd be the easiest thing. We say, yeah, we, we provided training. We told them about the hazard. We told them about the control. Um, and so we kind of wash our hands of it. But if we don't simplify that, then what we're doing is we say, okay, we're going to make sure that we have the control. We're going to make sure that um, it's effective. And then we provide the training. We're going to make sure the training shows specifically how to follow the control. And then after we train them, we're going to go out and we're going to make sure that that's being followed the way it's supposed to. So we're just not going to simplify it and assume anything. Um, and it can also apply if we're talking about the controls themselves is, you know, sometimes uh, 
like if we have a piece of equipment, we might say, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to write this procedure and um, the, the procedure is going to, going to have a, um, a lockout tagout procedure on it. And it's got an administrative procedure, but if we have the ability to put an engineering control on top of that, then it increases the reliability. So if there's the ability to use a more effective control, then you know we don't want to be we don't want to be simplified to the point where we don't have the best possible control. Um, of course, that's all subject to cost first benefit and, and budget and everything. But um, we just want to aim to have the most effective controls, whether it's elimination, substitution, engineering, administration, and then make sure the training explains how to use that control instead of just saying, you know, here's the hazard, be careful. Great. Well, thank you, Corey. Unfortunately, folks, we have run out of time today. Uh, if we didn't get to your question, the good news is that we will forward all the unanswered questions to Corey so he can respond. Uh, thank you all for attending today, and we appreciate you taking time to share your feedback via our survey. A special thank you today to our terrific presenter, Corey Worden, and everyone from our sponsor at Aveta. This ends today's Safety and Health Magazine webcast. Take care, everyone, and have a safe day.